Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to this evening's talk entitled Philosophy and Acceptance. And the subtitle is Going with the Flow. And it might be useful to highlight at the very beginning that in terms of how we live, we really only have one choice. And that is either to accept what's happening or to reject what's happening. And if you think about it, there isn't a lot of other options as such. So I found that interesting just to note at the very beginning. Now, there's a, a lot of confusion around the two words, both acceptance and going with the flow. Acceptance has come to mean a type of apathy, a lying down and doing nothing. And going with the flow has come to mean doing whatever you like. My children say, go with the flow, Dad, when they're trying to get me to agree to allow them to do something they probably shouldn't be doing. So tonight, the aim really is to clarify what does it actually mean to accept and practice acceptance, and what is truly going with the flow mean. So that's what we're trying to clarify. And just to begin, I remember a lady telling me, this is a number of years ago, that she realized at the age of 60, so she'd reached the age of 60 now, when she said that she had made her own life a misery, her husband's life a misery, and her children's life a misery, just by simply not accepting that she had a child with a disability. So she had spent all of her life not accepting this particular event. And it ended up making life miserable, in her own words. So what is true acceptance? True acceptance is seeing things accurately. It's a giving up of your will for the will of the Absolute. If you're religiously minded, it's the will of God. It's a complete absence of wanting things to be different than they are. True acceptance is a matter of choice. And as we've already said at the outset, we really only have one, and that's we either accept life as it's presented, or we reject it. Now, the Shankaracharya, this is a teacher whom the School of Philosophy has had contact with for many years, speaks about this acceptance. And what he says was, the laws of the universe bind man in every aspect of his existence except in one. The individual is free in attitude. He can deliberately create an attitude within himself and work accordingly. Even in miserable conditions, people become happy, or in happy conditions, people become miserable because they choose it like that. So effectively, he's saying that we have this choice. We can choose. It doesn't sound like we might do this, but we choose to be miserable. So what then is not acceptance? What is this false acceptance? It would be good to highlight some of its characteristics. So it's not lying down and not responding to things. It's not resignation, bemoaning our fate. It's not a settling for mediocrity. This is as good as it gets. Be happy with your lot. Aren't you better off than somebody else? That's not acceptance. A false turn-the-other-cheek idea. Or being the martyr. 
These are all merely supporting unreasonable behaviour in others and having little or no regard for the dignity of oneself. Now it might appear like a kind of acceptance, but in fact it's a laziness or an idleness. It's really not facing life. It's like abdicating our responsibility or a refusal to take part in the great play of life. It's often governed by fear and it involves not using our God-given intelligence, talents and energy to better ourselves and others. Nelson Mandela in his inauguration speech said we have this choice. We can either shrink or shine with whatever life is presenting. So if you could look back on today, you could ask yourself, did you shrink from what was presented or did you shine? Did you rise to the occasion and meet whatever was presented? The word responsibility means having an ability to respond. And the unexpected method is that acceptance is what gives you the ability to respond. And if there is a key in this evening's talk, it is that, that acceptance makes you an intelligent human being. It turns you into a reasonable human being and creates in you the capacity to respond to whatever is happening. In other words, unless we accept the event, we really can't deal with it properly. Resistance distorts the view and then we fail to respond to the needs. We deny ourselves the powers of reason, rendering us ineffective in every aspect and that's even in the small daily situations. You can't find a car park space. You can behave like a completely unreasonable human being. And that's only a minor issue. But as we heard earlier, that lady spoke about a whole life being effectively ruined because of an unwillingness to accept. Think of how we respond to the different events of life. Think of when technology last failed you. How did you respond? How did you fare? They spent millions of pounds designing this equipment with little egg timers and other means to tell you to wait patiently. But on occasions we can shake the old mouse around. My wife tells me it's the only time I use bad language. She knows the computer's not working if she hears me muttering bad language. Think of how we responded to ourselves being late or others being late, responding to our own teenage children, or the more important issues like this lady spoke of. A teacher was once asked, how do I know if I'm wise? The number of times you are disturbed in a day is an indication of the lack of wisdom, came the reply. On this basis, how wise or unwise are we? Well, this agitation and inner disturbance, which we seem to have a very high tolerance level for, a sort of an ongoing level of frustration, is the byproduct of this false acceptance. It's not really acceptance at all, in fact. Like, why is the experience of real peace so rare? Have you ever known, I'm sure you have noticed, how how peaceful a person looks when they've died. 
And people do say, uh, they've never seen him look so well. <laughs> or they've never seen her look so well. It's a pity that it's come to that in a way, isn't it? But it does reveal something. It does reveal that we're carrying around lots of tensions and burdens for nothing. Now what does it mean to go with the flow? As we've said, it's often taken to mean anything will do. The easy option or a license to be reckless. Now funny enough, going with the flow is actually asking us to stop doing something. <coughs> to stop wishing life was different. To stop avoiding people and events. To stop postponing tasks, procrastinating and all its other first cousins, delaying things, putting things off. To stop worrying, stop speculating about the future. To stop envying other people or envying their circumstances. To stop comparing ourselves. Our true self is beyond comparison. The six billion people on the planet are all different. So there will always be the possibility of comparing. Stop resisting situations and circumstances. Stop forcing plans to work, in particular despite the evidence. It's interesting that going with the flow is really encouraging us to stop interfering. There's a piece in the Bhagavad Gita which talks about this interference and it begins with when we dwell on the objects of sense. Once we start dwelling on the objects of sense we create an attraction for them. Attraction leads to desire, desire leads to anger, anger leads to loss of memory, loss of memory, reason is shattered and once reason is shattered destruction follows. Now you could hear there's a great big long process that happens over a lifetime or you could hear it as something that happens in a few moments. We go from very intelligent human being to according to the Bhagavad Gita a destroyed human being. But the interesting thing is that it starts with the dwelling. So somebody could say something to you first thing in the morning and you could spend the day being caught by it. You're dwelling on it. Or you could spend a week dwelling on it, or longer. And going with the flow is not to get caught. It's not to begin that dwelling process. Live the life that is being presented, as it's being presented. So we often think that to fulfill our lives we need to do more. But in actual fact we need to do less. We need to do less of all these things I have listed off. Also consider the amount of time and energy that goes into that list. Just consider all the time and energy in procrastination. Just take that one. We exhaust ourselves sometimes doing nothing except putting things off. Viktor Frankl, are you familiar with Viktor Frankl? This psychiatrist who spent four years in Auschwitz. In his book Man's Search for Meaning, he is encouraging us to go with the flow and this is what he has to say about it. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. 
For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so, as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. It's to take out the speculation and the analyzing and the manipulation and the trying to engineer how everything should go. It's to remove yourself from the process, if I can call it that. Then life flows and we respond without hesitation, without resistance, free from thinking about how bad things are or how life should be. In particular, how life should be different. And if you look at this, it's very much how life should be different for me. Now, why acceptance? Why should we accept <coughs> things? Right, there's lots of answers to this question, but there's one very obvious one at the outset. And it's like the common sense answer. In a way, what's happening is happening. You are the audience I have here this evening. I can do nothing about you. <laughs> There's no point in my wishing you were brighter <laughs> or had better hearing. <laughs> There's nothing to be gained by you wishing there was someone different giving the talk. This is what you have and this is what I have. And this is what's actually happening. This is the event as it's unfolding. And that's not a very philosophical thing. It's just a matter of fact. It's a matter of common sense. The event is unfolding as it's unfolding. And I'm saying that's the first and main reason why we should practice acceptance. Have a look at what non-acceptance does. Take a simple thing like not accepting that it's raining. What does it do? It causes misery in ourselves. It doesn't change the rain. It doesn't make it dry rain. It doesn't change anything. In fact, it only multiplies the pain of the event. That's all it succeeds in doing. And if you're sitting there this evening thinking you could give this talk better, you'll be in pain as well. So that's the common sense reason. But Marsilio Ficino, the, the father of the Italian Renaissance, gives us three other reasons why we should practice acceptance. The first is that you should be willing to bear cheerfully the ills of life which nature herself bids you bear unwillingly. So the first is they can make you cheerful in the face of what's coming. The second is that you should make those things that fate has decreed to be inevitable agreeable to your own will. So as to turn what fate is delivering into a much more agreeable situation. And the third one, that you should turn any evil whatsoever into a good, which is the office of God alone. Now in the first of these, acceptance requires you to oppose nature, in the second, to confound fate, and in the third, to raise ourselves to the level of God. 
With true acceptance, there's a complete surrender of the ego, the me, this me character. And our will becomes one with the will of the Absolute. The Shankaracharya speaks about this. He said that if one has to find out the essence of all that has been described in the 18 chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, the message is to surrender yourself. Once the surrender has taken place, nothing is dislodged, and yet the flow of energy will not take place from the individual ego and the past, but from the source to which the ego has been surrendered. And if this is allowed to happen, then all the wonderful acts of creative power in the Absolute could be made available. In simple terms, he's talking about giving up this character who's trying to sort everything out, who's trying to engineer everything, who's trying to change things to suit his or her particular view of things. Now, there's an important question here. Why have we been presented with the particular life that we've been presented with? Why have you got the very particular life that you have with all its ups and downs and comings and goings and successes and failures? Is there a reason that I have to meet all the different things that I have to meet? All the different situations that are presented? How do I know that it's not all for my benefit? Every part of it measured very precisely for my benefit. It doesn't seem so at the time, but it's worthy of examination. How do I know it's not all very precisely for my benefit? How sure am I that what I resist is not actually for my good? Do you recognize that at the time you think something's happening, you think it's bad, and a number of years go past and you look back and think how good it was, how useful it was? What would it be like if we could have that hindsight wisdom at the time the event is happening? It would save a great deal of misery. Also, think while it was happening, we wished it wasn't, but are now glad that it did. Think of all those ex-girlfriends and boyfriends you nearly married, but you didn't. Now, I hope that doesn't bring up regret. <laughs> I'm thinking of the ones I'm delighted I didn't. <laughs> the Shankaracharya described the entire creation as a play held in bliss where activities abound and causes no stress. Shakespeare also used a similar analogy describing the whole world as a stage and all of us are merely players with our exits and entrances. And throughout our life we play many parts from young schoolboy and ending in oblivion. But essentially both teachers very different traditions describing the entire creation as a play. In some of our lives it's a very serious play. Why do we resist? Why don't we simply accept the events and circumstances as they're presented? Well firstly we think we can control events we can control things to deliver a particular outcome. And there's some idea somewhere that if I deliver that outcome, I'd be very happy. So there's a lot of engineering to try and reach that particular outcome. 
we're not masters of the universe. There's a far greater intelligence than ours running the show. And also getting what we want does not necessarily bring us happiness. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Midas, are you? What happened to Midas? He wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. And he got his wish, but he touched his beautiful daughter, whom he loved dearly, and she unfortunately also turned to gold. So he lost his daughter. Just think of all the food he went to eat. He lost the food. He lost everything. We've no control over what befalls us. I know, and I'm speaking with you on this, that why we even discuss this, somewhere in the back of our minds there is a niggly idea that we do. But we really have no control over what's presented. Nisargadatta, a famous teacher from Bombay, said, the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which our efforts are merely one. There's so many factors come together for an event to unfold and our engagement is one small part of that. We have a type of arrogance thinking that we know how things should be when we don't and that we know what's best for us when we don't. This should be happening and that shouldn't be happening and it certainly shouldn't be happening to me. We don't trust that we will be taken care of. When it comes to flying the plane, we trust the pilot. With matters medical, we trust the doctor. Why then in matters of life do we lack trust? What will we trust? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? We're familiar with the statement, if you want to make God laugh, how do you make God laugh? Yeah, show him your plans. He must be in stitches at the moment. Where does this unreasonable idea come from that we think we know how things should be? And not just for ourselves, for everybody. We think we know what's fair, what's not fair, what should be and should not be happening. And to whom? Where did we come by this amazing gift? So contrary to popular opinion and that little niggly voice I referred to earlier, we have no control over what befalls us at any time. However, we do have absolute control over how we respond to the events of life. In fact, it's the only thing we have control over how we respond. We either accept, as said at the very outset, or we reject. Now I was going to look at the effect of acceptance in three areas. One was on the events of life, two was on relationships, 
and three on ourselves or our character. So the first thing to do is just have a look at the events of life. Is that okay? And we're going to use a common enough event. You all see this, yes? Are you familiar with queuing, yes? Okay, so this is the bank counter. Is that okay? Now here we have all these characters queuing. And we'll put you in a different colour. And we'll give you your full body. Is that alright? So I want this to be an example of an event. It could be an example of any event. I'm just using Q as just the example to work with. Now, what would the negative feeling be that you, would, you might experience in a Q if you weren't too happy with, if you weren't accepting it? Yes, yeah, so you'd be frustration. Yeah, call out a couple more. Actually, impatience is the, the main feeling. Is that okay? That's the main one. Now, have we all got some sympathy with this idea? We've been in this position, haven't we? Right, good. So, impatience is the predominant feeling, and the effect of us is frustration and a bit of anger, maybe a bit of stress. Now, why are you experiencing this frustration, impatience, anger and stress? Where are you at the moment? At the back of the queue. Where do you want to be? And because you're not at the top, what do you do? What does that tell you about it, firstly? It's pointless. It's pointless. It is totally unreasonable. It's time-consuming. It's very time-consuming. And you'd also have designs on these people. Like, she shouldn't be here at all. <laughs> She's far too old. There should be a special counter for old people at lunchtime in the bank. And she, yeah, you see, she's got far too much money to count. And these two here, they, they look like they're foreign visitors. There should be another counter for foreign visitors to change their money. And then, somehow, miraculously, I should be moved up here without any difficulty, even if it means napalming this guy here. It's totally unreasonable. You forgot that it's the bank's fault. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Oh, no, he's, that's right, he's going too slow. And they've only got one teller. And who are you going to write to when you're here? You're going to write to the manager. Have you ever written that letter? You have. You're rare. My wife comes home frequently and says, I'm going to write to someone. I've never seen her sit down and write the letter. Now, what's causing this problem? But what's, what is it that you're doing that's causing the problem? Non-acceptance. Non-acceptance. This is the event of life and not accepting. So what's not accepting do? It makes us a frustrated, angry, stressful individual. And if you did have to, let's say you, there was something urgent happening and you did have to actually get to the end of this queue. So you start to knock people out of the way. How would they respond to you? Would they let you past? So it's not even effective in getting the mundane things of life done. It won't get you to the top of the queue, even at a mundane level. In fact, they would start to behave the same way. I don't know why, in the supermarket sometimes you feel a trolley pushing at your legs. Have you ever had that experience? What do you do when you feel that happening? Straighten up. No way you're getting past here. Because that frustration, anger and impatience brings out the very same response here. So what's the antidote? 
Acceptance. Okay, so what happens to you if you accept the situation? You change from being an impatient, unreasonable human being into what? So calm, relaxed, and reasonable. That's it. And what would that allow you to do? Text a love letter to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> you could text a love letter to your wife while you stand in the queue. That's true. That's true. And that might be the right thing to do, is just to stand there and enjoy the queue. What else might it allow you to do? You could make a decision and come back. What else? Rest. You could just have a little rest, enjoy yourself. That's true. But you could also ask, if necessary, could you go up here? If the need was so great. And sometimes that is the case. Isn't it? But it is the need sometimes. And if you ask in a reasonable manner, what is likely to happen here? They'll accommodate you. Someone asks you very reasonably, can I go ahead of you because I'm very late, etc. The majority of humanity will let that person up. So this impatience and non-acceptance turns ourselves into a misery and renders us incapable of dealing with the event. Acceptance immediately puts you in a position where you're reasonable and you're able to deal with the event. And you can multiply this out over all the events of life. Is that okay? So that's the first area. The second area is relationships. Now, how many of our relationships could we say are harmonious? And I mean with everybody now, including yourself. How often are we at war with ourselves, criticizing, demanding, expecting great things from ourselves? all of which is the source of conflict and disharmony within. How often do we engage in the same criticizing, expecting and demanding of others? In particular, those we love. The Shankaracharya describes the natural in-between people is love. So the natural state, if you like, there is love. And we come along and put all sorts of impediments in there, like described, the expectation, the demand, the requirement, the criticisms, the judgments, and they slot in quite quickly. Now, acceptance removes all those impediments, because if you look at them, all those impediments are a non-acceptance of the individuality of this person here. It's a refusal to accept the person just as they are with all their bits and pieces. So non-acceptance just fertilizes and cultivates the impediments. Acceptance eliminates them. And where you have acceptance, love arises naturally. It's why you see love arises naturally with a little newborn baby. You don't see a newborn baby and think, oh God, look, the brown eyes. I wanted blue ones. <laughs> you, know, you don't start thinking like that. You just accept fully as perfect the little baby as it appears. In fact, even when there is a disability or something wrong, the mother and father accept fully the newborn baby. And the love arises naturally. Unfortunately for us, in relationships, we can get caught up on the deficiencies or what we perceive as deficiencies. So accepting people's individuality, not wanting them to be different, 
allows love to arise naturally. Accepting yourself as you are allows love to arise naturally for oneself. How do we want to be received in all our relationships? In what relationships are we most comfortable? They are those where we're accepted fully. And where we are rejected, it's not a pleasant experience. Anything we accept as perfect, we love. Even if it's a rugby score, a try being scored in rugby. If you, if you actually see it as perfect, you love it and you want to watch it again and again. And in a way, non-acceptance is like seeing imperfections here. Imperfections in everybody. Not quite right, not perfect enough. Not perfect enough for me. So anything we accept as perfect, we love. Husbands, wives, children, neighbours, people we do business with, strangers. With acceptance, these relationships could be based on love, resulting in harmony rather than disharmony, and unity rather than division. And the third area I was going to touch on was character, or ourselves. Now, it's not the events of life that determine a person's character, but how we meet those events. Acceptance builds character, and non-acceptance weakens it. Think of any situation of adversity in your life to date. The effect of accepting and facing it connects us with qualities and attributes which would otherwise go unused or lie dormant. So you meet an event that's a difficulty or tragedy or adversity of some kind. There's the event and it's adversity, let's say, and here's you over here. It's facing that event or accepting that event that draws out qualities from yourself in order to meet it. If we don't meet those events, these qualities can lie dormant. So they don't get exercise, they don't get any training. So in a way, the more adversity, the better. There's a, the famous story of Arjuna. His mother was granted a great boon and she chose adversity. And she was asked why and she said, every time in adverse circumstances, I think on thee, referring to the Lord. So we should be grateful for adversity, if this is true. More adversity, more connection with these qualities within, more connection with the qualities within, more they form part of our character. No adversity, you're not doing so well. It's why it's said that adversity is a great teacher. So we've those three aspects, the events of life, the relationships, and our own selves in terms of our character. So how can we grow in acceptance? How do we make it practical? The good news is that acceptance is a heart thing, it's not a head thing. So it requires no qualifications, no learning, no study. It only requires one thing, and that is practice. And it's a letting go process, it's not an acquiring process. So. You could select one of these. I'm going to give you a little list of practical directions which we could work with. One is accepting yourself as you are right now. 
accept everything and everyone around you as they are right now. Stop wanting things to be different. Practice patience. Facino gives us a direction there just to accept everything as, as it's happening as the best. So that's how you practice patience, by accepting everything that's happening as the best. Observe and let go criticism, especially the silent criticism in our heads. And that's one sure sign of non-acceptance. If you go back to the queue, you're standing there, probably looking okay, but there'll be quite a lot of criticism internally for the bank, the manager, and everybody in the queue. Make plans, yes. Demand that they go a particular way, no. Learn to follow the plan. Follow the moment rather than demand that it unfold a particular way. Take a step-by-step -step approach to problem solving. I'm sure you're familiar with having some issue or problem to deal with and there are a number of steps to it. So you might have four or five or six steps and we, for some reason we focus in on one of them. And we wonder about what are we going to do when this happens and if it happens and how am I going to cope with this when this takes place and that takes place, etc., 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 etc. But we haven't even taken this step yet. And quite often the solution is just take one step at a time. It's step by step. The amount of energy that's wasted speculating on future steps that haven't materialized yet. And in particular, there may be no need for any of these steps once this one's taken. There may be no need for these once that one's taken. It's just to adopt a step-by-step -step approach. Cultivate an open and welcoming response to life. Say yes to life. We were invited on holidays. Myself and my wife were invited on holidays a few years ago with a perfectionist. Have you any idea what it might be like to go on a holiday with a perfectionist? So I went home and I said to Valerie, Valerie, we've been invited on holidays. And I told her who the inviter was. Invitee. I'm the invitee, am I? Yeah. And the host. And she said, oh, oh, uh, I don't know what that would be like. I said, do you want to go on this holiday? Beautiful holiday, villa, sunny country, etc. And she said, yes, I'd love to go. I said, there's only one word you need to learn off by heart and you will enjoy this holiday. What was the one word she had to learn off by heart so that she would enjoy the holiday? And she did enjoy the holiday. Yes. 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 We're off to the museum this morning? Yes, we are. <laughs> this is the restaurant we're going to? Yes, this is exactly where we're going. We're going to this beach? Absolutely we are going to this beach. Do you get the point of it? That it was absolutely thoroughly enjoyable. So enjoyable that we went the following year. And we used exactly the same mechanism. Just agree and say yes. Now just compare that to resisting everything. Wanting to go to a different venue, a different beach and a different pizzeria. It's very different. So adopt this welcoming response to life. Say yes to life. And not just to bits of it, to all of it. 
Now, to help with this, to assist with our practice, I've listed off a few practices there, we need to connect with a sense of stillness within ourselves. We need to become more composed within ourselves, more connected. Otherwise, habit will just operate. And operate it does. We revert to type very quickly. So we will have a life of reaction and resistance very habitually. Now earlier we heard how the creation was referred to by different sources as a play, a play on the stage. Well, staying with that analogy, meditation has been described as a method of going backstage or a method of connecting with that stillness within oneself. The Shankaracharya describes it as the place where the actors are told what to do and how to do it. There, backstage, they are dressed properly so as to play their part. But what is seen in the world is that people go on playing their part, their costumes become dirty, worn out, and their part becomes stale and repetitive. For example, the well which gives water for irrigation must be left alone without any withdrawal during the night so it can recover a fresh supply of water for the next day. If one simply goes on drawing from the well, the well will become dry. So, the only recourse for the growth of consciousness is to go backstage. In other words, to meditate. By going into meditation, one recharges oneself with finer energy and comes out with extra energy imbued with consciousness and bliss. Without meditation or without some method or means of connecting with that stillness within oneself, what we're talking about is very challenging. So the practical directions are one aspect and then strengthening yourself to be able to practice them is the other. Just to finish off, acceptance of the will of the Absolute leads to a dissolution of the individuality and a merger with the Absolute. It allows for the fulfilment of the ultimate human purpose as well as making life blissful. It does not require great knowledge, as we've said. It simply requires some practice. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. All right, ladies and gentlemen. So, what questions would you like to ask? When you told about this event that you went on holiday with your wife and the yes saying, and I think my problem with this would be that it has not been the truth. You know, you said yes, you accepted it, but you needed to twist something to make it possible yeah, and joyful for yourself. I don't know if you know what I mean. Yes. Okay. What's the question? That it is not, you haven't given a true answer, you know. You, you said yes to something where you might not like to be. Oh, I see. You're telling me I didn't speak the truth? Yes. yes. You see, it depends on what our understanding of the truth is. Yes. So, all that was executed was just to agree with and go with whatever was on offer and to put aside one's personal preferences 
So it might be erroneous to think that my personal preferences are the truth. All my personal preferences would have done would have created resistance in myself and caused disharmony in the gathering and a very unenjoyable event. Putting aside one's personal preferences is just accepting the situation as it was offered. It wasn't engineered, it wasn't calculated, it was just accepting whatever's on offer, just accept that. But I wouldn't equate that with being untruthful at all. My question was when you didn't say, when you said yes all the time, sometimes you have to say no too. Yes, there are times in life when you have to say no, but sincerely going on a holiday to Italy is not one of those occasions. <laughs> No, but you are quite right. It's not about being a yes person. What we said during the talk was acceptance puts you in a position where you can respond appropriately to the situation. And sometimes, like you're saying, the appropriate response is no. Sometimes the appropriate response is yes. Sometimes it's something else. Acceptance allows you the space and the reason and the intelligence to deal with whatever is presented, whatever that is. Is there a difference between accepting and being passive? Yes. And what is that difference? Very good. See, passivity, is that the word, is really not acceptance. That's resignation. It's mediocrity. It's giving up. Just accept your lot. Do you recognize it? You might have been told to do it on occasions, but it's not true acceptance. It's a kind of a false acceptance or a, a type of martyrdom. But it's not true acceptance. Is that okay? Acceptance is accepting the event and fully engaging with it. You go with the event. Like the example of the queue we've used, it's acceptance, but you still may need to ask, can you go to the top of the queue? Saying when you can do something about the event, then you're to be active. Is that right? Then you're to be proactive. That's the need. Sometimes the need is just to be quiet and enjoy the queue in the example we used. Sometimes the need is to be active and engage in something and actually take some action. And it's acceptance that allows you to become reasonable enough to make that judgment as to what you should or should not do, or what's needed in the situation. The example today would be the recessionary times we're going through and what's yeah. actually happening in the measures that have been passed recently. We're accepting that. To some extent we're being passive about it. Well, it's hard to speak on behalf of a whole nation, you see. You, you may or may not be accepting it, I don't know. You may have little or no choice but to accept the situation that's presented and the cuts and the various changes and things. Or you could criticise it and moan about it and complain about it forever and do nothing about it. Or you could accept the situation and actually take some action if there was that opportunity to take some action. Acceptance isn't lie down and do nothing. If we get that from the evening, it would be very useful. So it's like accept and fully engage with the event. It's like accepting what's actually happening is happening. This is what's happening. Now respond to that. Yeah, I think acceptance is just the use of the word yes and no can get confusing because we put acceptance equals yes and non-acceptance equals no. And to me that's not correct at all. I could be in total acceptance of a situation and then say no. That would be my follow-on. I accept where I totally am in this situation, and now I'm saying no. My own opinion, I think that we could cut up that acceptance equals yes, non-acceptance equals no, and that's not correct at all. No, absolutely. That's Spot on. My, my view. Yeah, that's very good. You can accept the situation and then say no. 
and that's your response. In fact, it's interesting that you could be the passive accepting that we spoke of earlier and be saying yes and be full of resistance to the event and saying yes. Do you recognize that? Very good. Brian, much is said about vision, about people having vision in business or a vision for a family or vision you know, in politics. And there seems to be a very subtle difference between vision on the one hand for how things should be and it might look in the future and you know, following plans to a fault on the other. You know, there seems to be quite a subtle difference between those and they often get sort of overlapped. I wonder, mm. could you just comment on, on that? Having a vision for, let's say, your family, a glorious vision for your family would be noble and worthy thing. And you may even have plans as to how that's going to unfold. The problem would be trying to stick to them. So you can have the vision guiding you and then you follow the plans rather than try and stick to them. Like there's nothing wrong with making a plan, but it's having the wisdom and the insight to know to change them slightly, to take a slightly different route. Have I ever told you about the Yol story, have I? Well, I'll tell you the Yol story. What's the vision for a family holiday? Enjoyment, happiness, harmony, isn't that right? You don't get into yeah. a car and say, let's go and have a miserable time, do you? <laughs> what do you hope for on a family holiday? Happiness. happiness, fun, enjoyment, togetherness, yes? Right. So, in this context, that's the vision, is that okay? So the project is a family holiday, and the vision is happiness. Now, you have to have a plan, don't you? Okay, so we have the plan, and the plan was, very simply, that my wife would drive with the ladies of the family in one car and I would drive with the gentleman in the car in the rear. And we were going to Yol. And the plan was that we would stop off, this was before the motorway days, we would stop off in Cashel Palace for lunch. That's the plan, so stay with the plan, is that okay? And we would eventually get over here in Yol the destination was Yole and I think the time was about 6 o'clock. Now, it's not a very serious event, but you can see the two factors, can't you? What should guide how this plan is executed? The vision. So what do I have to hold to while I'm executing the plan? <laughs> so that's the vision, and this is not a very life-threatening event, it's not a very serious event, but it still has the two elements. Now, on the road, there's a big sign about 90 feet long, by a hundred foot deep saying Waterford. Which, for some reason, my wife decided to follow. <laughs> I just want you to tell me, how did I respond to that? I'm behind, we had mobile phones by the way, and we had them in both cars, so there was contact. So you just tell me, what did I do? Blew well, we blew the horn here, followed, followed her, phoned her and said, where the hell are you going? Where the hell are you going? Right? So, where the hell are you going, right? You've obviously been in this situation, haven't you? Any other offerings? I keep going and let her find her own way. Let her stew. You can see how quickly we're moving away from happiness, can't you? Over here we have her stewing somewhere. The vision is happiness. 
Happiness for the family, right? Follow her. We follow her, which is what we did. We didn't phone anybody, and we followed. You see, what would be the benefit in ringing up saying, what are you doing on the wrong road? Get back on the right road. We have to have our lunch in Casha Palace. Tell me the benefit of that. None. She was very happy, and we ended up in a little pub over here having lunch. And when we stopped, she said, I think I'm on the wrong road. And I said, I think you are. <laughs> now, but did it bother her from what I'm saying? No. No. Did it bother me much? No. What do you think the state of the family is at this point? Happy. Okay? And we actually had a magnificent lunch. Then the publican came out and gave us a new direction over some beautiful mountains. You all probably know these mountains. And it was in October. It was absolutely beautiful. So the best bit of the journey was here, about halfway down that road, which I've never been on since, by the way, but it was beautiful. And we ended up in Yol around the right time, actually, give or take, to collect the keys of this house we had rented, etc., etc. Okay? Now, did we stick to plan? No. no. What did we hold to? The vision. So it's hold to the vision and follow the plans. Now, if I'd had a business meeting in Cashel Palace, I may have had to take different course of action. But that wasn't the case. If you tried to stick to the plan, we'd have, according to you lot, stewing people over here. It's beautiful to have a vision for whatever, but to try and make the plan work is the problem. There's only one way this will unfold, and it's my way, and it's fixed, and it has to go a particular way. That's where the trouble starts. Why make a plan? At all. Well, that's a good question, actually. For practical reasons. It's better than leaving the house in the morning and saying, See you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well have said that. No, no. Ah, no, it'd be a bit rough. Good luck. We're going off on holidays this morning. We'll see you whenever we see you. It might be tonight, it might not be tonight. You do need to make plans for practical reasons. That's the only reason. But trying to make them work and trying to stick to them is the problem. I mean, think of all the plans you've made in your life, even the overall plan for your life. Has it worked out according to plan? No, no. that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to make them stick and work and adhere to a certain plan would cause great misery. Being able to bend and move and go with the flow of whatever is happening is a much more rewarding affair. Interesting enough, acceptance is also in there, isn't it? At the point where she turned. And then the innocence when we got here, I think we're on the wrong road. Like it was so obvious, the big sign. Would I be right in saying that the kernel of the thing is you must be happy with what you have and enjoy it and not wish for anything else. Taking it day by day, that bit of scripture comes into my mind about Christ saying, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, that you're going to have all these ups and downs and you have to accept them as they come. Not to be blaming anybody or thinking somebody caused them or anything else, just accept them as they are and carry on. Yeah, very good. Absolutely, yeah. That's it. The only thing we have control over is how we respond to the event that happened. Yeah. We have no control over the actual event that befalls us. But you are right. The way you've said it, take up your cross, whatever that is for the day, and get on with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. 
I'd just like to ask, would you consider that acceptance as a journey rather than a destination? It certainly doesn't sound like a destination. So it doesn't have that end of the situation's feel about it. It strikes me as an important part of whatever journey we're on. All the different stages and all the different events that happen, some will be successful, some will be tragic, some will be challenging. In Ficino's description earlier, he describes that making the events of life that fate is going to present to us, it's making those agreeable to our will. So it's really how we execute the journey. I noticed something there recently. We have a, a particular attraction for the misery. I don't know if that's obvious to you, is it? But there is a particular attraction. I had a, a son recently in hospital, and it was a serious enough situation where he was hospitalized for a number of weeks. And at one point, the prognosis was very bad. And what I noticed was that there you have the event happening now, and the choice, really, that was being presented was you stay here, present, and accept what's actually happening, or you go off down here into the misery world, which is, why is this happening? This shouldn't be happening to me. He's only 26. How could God do such a thing? You could make this as big and as terrible as you want. Does that make sense? So this is the misery here. Now, what I noticed was that there was an attraction for that. There's actually a, a tendency to want to go there. It's not accepting what's happening and the force of habit that sends you down here. Tell me who that misery serves. Does it serve my son at the time? No. Does it serve me, his father? His mother? Brothers, sisters? No. And yet we could find ourselves saying things like, but it's only natural and sure you have to go down there and that's the way it is. The truth is you don't have to go down there. And that's the choice we have. Acceptance brings you and keeps you up here. Non-acceptance is what sends you down there. Sorry, I just wanted to say maybe non-acceptance keeps you down there, but I think there's a humanity in visiting it when events happen and you come out of it, and that's where the learning is. No, absolutely true. But it can be seconds, yeah. or you can take the scenic route. Yeah, that's the humanity it is indeed, but not to reduce this idea of humanity down to something that we've no control over things and we can't help ourselves. Yeah, I wanted to say I don't agree that it's just habit that brings us into that. I think no. shock can do it. it. Mainly shock and grief, I think, can do that. And yeah. it takes some time to come out of that state. The only thing is that you can decide how long that's going to be. What I discovered was, the more accepting I was of the situation, the less I was down here. And what I noticed was that the more accepting I was of the situation, the more useful I became, the more helpful I became to everybody around me. The less accepting, the more miserable I became, and the less useful. It was really quite striking. What struck me most was the attraction for it. Do you recognize it? That is worth highlighting. There's an attraction for this misery. Mine can take you anywhere. That's true. And for some reason it tends downwards. It's easier to go that way. It's easier to descend into chaos and misery.
Sorry. Like, is it not a natural and a normal process, like the grieving process, when someone close to you dies, yes. that you do grieve for a period of time, you're yeah. in shock, you're, you're numb? I don't see any great difference between that and the grieving process. No, but they're both the same. Yeah. In both situations, you don't have to stay there. Granted, but if you don't go there, probably yeah. you won't recover. Well, I'm just not so sure that you have to stay there to recover. This doesn't mean that your emotional response to the world becomes unnatural now. Your emotional response to the world becomes actually more true, in fact. This is just misery. It's the dwelling that was spoken about in the Bhagavad Gita that I referred to earlier. Yeah. Can you be born in that hole of misery and contrariness? <laughs> you could be born with a tendency to want to go there more so than go... Yeah. Yes, you could. You could practice it more and more than someone else. Become a perfectionist. You could become a perfectionist at this. Like, my, like myself. Yes. Or that lady. <laughs> well, actually, that lady is a good example. Remember the lady I referred to at the beginning? I mean, I was very struck by the way she spoke. If you have doubts. You mean you may have doubts, like in the example I've used here? You may have doubts. Well, entertaining the doubt won't be helpful. What I noticed was, in the acceptance, I was much better able to help him. And it also came to mind to get second opinions, and to check with certain people, and to examine certain options. So I became much more intelligent up here, much more helpful. I was able to make calls that otherwise I mightn't have thought about if I was down here. If there's any doubt about the situation that you're involved in, and you can't take any action, they're of no use. If doubt is encouraging you to take action, then it's of some use. The idea would be that you have to accept the situation as it currently is, like what was said, exactly as it is, and what is the most intelligent response to that, that situation? Doubt won't help you as such, unless it's giving you a little flagging that you should be taking action. Sometimes doubt can be useful. Does it make sense? Because yes. it, it can wake you up to take action. You need to check that out. Stop wandering around the place entertaining doubt if you need to check something out. If you're down here entertaining worry, it may prevent you from bringing an intelligent response to the situation. Like we can get consumed with worry and speculation and what if and what might not happen and actually not be doing anything useful. We could be missing what's needed, in fact. Worry won't assist the outcome. Two things that come to my mind is positive thinking and keep loving the heart at all times. Mm. And I think if you could do that much, you would see through the situation much better. Whatever's happening. Whatever's happening. Absolutely, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, very good. Brian, I have the same problem as the first speaker who said she couldn't accept that you had gone on holidays to Italy with the person that you obviously didn't approve of. And I have a similar twist of mind or problem or whatever you'd call it, that an event in my life caused me so much anger that it was endogenous depression and anger. In the middle of having a shower, I would find myself screaming at the person and using language that I thought I was never capable of using. I'd say you're capable, Joan, of a few bad words. Well, 
Well, I can agree with you that I was. And it's always the same problem when I see it's the other person's dishonor. And in this case, it was the other person's dishonor. I still can feel, and I've only just sort of experienced a very good situation, apropos this particular person who caused the dreadful event in my life. And I lost something that I'd put an enormous amount of energy into, of my energy. And I still feel that I have never confronted that person to let her see the worst side of herself. Yes. Even though I accept that people accept the worst side of me, like the listeners now, so I'll say no more, Brian. But I do understand the problem in my own mind that the first speaker had. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Well, just so we're clear, I didn't have to go to Italy on holidays. That's the first point. And really the only purpose in telling that story was to highlight that if one had gone with non-acceptance of the situation, it would have been a catastrophe. As it turned out, it was a very enjoyable event. And what made it enjoyable? The full acceptance that this was this man's holiday, I was his guest, whatever he was doing, we were doing as well. That's all. Now we went the following year as well. So you'd have to say that it worked. But it's only to illustrate that aspect. It doesn't mean that you say yes to everything in life, if that makes sense. Like someone pointed out, you accept a situation and say no, or you accept a situation and say yes. So it's not just about saying yes. The decision is based on acceptance rather than resistance or rejection. Does acceptance mean this is a reality, this is here? This is what it is, yeah. Hmm. This is the reality of what's happening right now. It's like acceptance of what is actually happening. And how does that of itself just help you? Do you recognize resistance? Mm -hmm. What's the effect of resistance on you? Negative emotions. Okay. Frustration. So, anger. How useful is that for making a decision or addressing a situation? It's not useful for making a decision or addressing a situation, but it is the only way that you can vent your emotions, even on your own, not necessarily like Joan with the, the person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, venting the emotions uh, is not very useful no, no. either, you see. It's not very useful. Like, who benefits from that? It's part of biology. No, it's not necessarily a part of being human. Can't hide from them. No, you can't hide from them, that's true. And so you must experience them and, and live with them. But you speak as if we're almost void of emotion, you know, and when you spoke about going down to misery. Yes. Emotions drive you down there. Circumstances drive you down there. I'd love to be able to switch off sometimes, but we're not machines. No, you're not a machine. And sometimes we're overflowing with emotion. That's true, too. What you were calling emotions here is just being emotional. The Shankaracharya, that little quotation I referred to earlier, what does he say is the natural emotion, if you like, in between us all? Love. And what we're calling emotions are interferences and impediments in that natural, pure emotion, true emotion. Now, the emotions, you can't stop them rising and falling. You can't stop anger rising and falling, but you don't have to go with it. You don't have to get caught up in it and be dragged along by it. You don't act out of it. 
No, you don't have to act out of it. That's true. But you do experience it, but you don't have to act out of it. That's true. And it can be for a second or it can be for days. We do have a choice. I'm just going to make a comment on what you were saying about misery and worry. And the one thing I notice about when I go too far with misery or worry is that it absolutely depletes my energy. Mm. So I think that's one of the reasons in the last year or so that I try and limit very obviously because there's a time when you're miserable that you notice you're going on that track and it's the most exhausting emotion. Yeah. And I find myself now saying, stop, what are you doing to yourself, yeah. you know? And I think it's because I've related it to the total depletion of energy yeah, no, that good. helps me to stop it. Well, there's probably nothing that saps our energy more than this indulging and wallowing and entertaining negativity. Just to tie in with the last speaker, there is a natural play of emotion, but what we're talking about is getting caught and staying there and dwelling there and finding it attractive. And if you just look at it in your own experience as to who benefits from this, and ask yourself, do we have a choice? Is there a choice? And if there is a choice, we should be executing it and making that choice to not go there. But it's not to suggest we're machines. We have this magnificent capacity to choose. Do we uh, choose misery or do we choose to be present and composed and attend to the event? Just on grief there, and you've got your two pats, acceptance on the top, and then you fall down into grief. Uh, I've just had a lot of personal experience with grief in my own life um, in the last year. And I find that when you fall down into grief, that it happens in an instant. And if you're doing this ping-pong ball where you pull your best self back up out of it, that doesn't work for me anyway. And that's more or less going against what you're saying. By pulling yourself back up, you're resisting what is, which is your grief at that moment. And I find the best way for me out of grief is when I'm actually in it, say, I'm in grief, I accept it. And yeah. then it actually dissipates very quickly. Yeah, no, Th very that's good. what I do. Yeah, just accept what's actually happening. I accept that I'm in grief. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, very good. I had somebody at this lecture in Dublin recently said that in a similar situation, but they spoke of when they remembered the person, they were blissfully happy. When they dwelt upon what they had lost, they were miserable. And I thought it was very clean the way they said it. And they said they were practicing refusing to go down here which I thought was very powerful, the way she spoke, this lady. I just lost a 22-year-old daughter. So she was speaking from some experience. Everything that happens to you is perfect. That's it. You accept it, and you're quite happy with it. To me, it gets kind of boring after a while. I mean, you, you have these emotions coming up, and anger, and, and so on and That's so true. forth. And in other words, you can't kind of live with it like that all the time would be nearly impossible. Well, whether it's impossible or not, you see, the spice and the entertainment is going to come anywhere. The events are full of spice and entertainment because we don't know what's coming next. There's an abundance of entertainment and spice and interest and variation and everything coming at us all the time. All we're talking about is putting ourselves in the best position to engage with that and enjoy it, actually. If you were in that situation, I would say that you accept everything, and everything was going against you, completely against you, would it be right, according to your theories there, would it be right to pray for a change and pray for happiness and pray for some kind of a change in your lifestyle? 
Now, you can pray, that's one possibility, right? And we could discuss that, maybe. But what we're talking about is the very means to making those changes that you're talking about is acceptance. The very method is acceptance. It's like you can't really respond to things as they're happening unless you accept what's actually happening. When it's happening, the means to make this even more spicy and more interesting and more entertaining is acceptance. And that's what allows you to respond to it and to go with the flow and to make changes and to go down paths you never imagined possible. But it's acceptance that allows you to do that. Try praying if you wish, and that has its place. But it's acceptance that puts you in a position to address these situations. Most of us I have over the last decades heard of people talking, of other people saying they love the misery, they love the doom and gloom, they love being down. And, you know, we've, we've all come across people who would, you take them out for a meal and they'll complain about the food, the yeah. service, the cost of it, and they'll go home more miserable than when they got there. I think in some ways that's what you're getting to, and I think just what the gentleman up here was saying as well, was if those people were able to accept where they were, which is that everything that they come across, there's something wrong with it or there's, there's misery in it. They might be able to lift themselves a bit out of it. Yeah. If you examine your, yourself, you will find there is a certain element of that in ourselves. Do you recognise it? There is an element of that in everyone. I think that the strongest word I have found in dealing with my life is choice. And every time something comes up, I say, I have a choice. And if I can stop to think that mm. word, then I usually take the right choice. But it's when you, you know, you can't remember or you don't remember to say, I have a choice, that you go the wrong way. Yeah, no, very and good. And you stay down there. Yeah, very good. Excellent, yeah. And what we were talking about there at the end of that talk is that discovering that stillness within yourself allows you capacity for exercising that choice. So by whatever means, meditation is the one I've spoken about in the talk, but by some means to discover that stillness allows you to execute that choice. Very good. The gentleman at the end. Why should acceptance change our emotions? If we're strong-minded enough, I think we would hold our body in a natural state of being, a God-given natural state of being, which is love in the heart. Why should we move from that? You see, acceptance is, if you like, the way of cultivating that love in the heart. If there isn't love in the heart, you'd have to examine what is there, what impediments are there. Is it criticism? Is it judgment? Is it prejudice? Which are all forms of non-acceptance. If I'm criticizing you, I'm not accepting you. So in a way, acceptance is what allows the heart to fill with love and resistance or rejection allows it to fill with something else. And you're right we should be all full of love and that would be the ideal but acceptance is the means or the method at least it's the method and means that we're talking about this evening if that's all right hello good evening should we set objectives in life it would seem reasonable to set objectives in life yes it just depends on the context and what you actually mean if i could just use the word purpose of life and marry that with the word objective it would be a very good question to examine what is the purpose or what is the objective of this whole life? What is my purpose here, which really is 
one of the questions that you would associate with philosophical study, what is the purpose of this life? If you mean it in a lesser context, it would seem reasonable. If you have a business, it's useful to have an objective. If you're carrying out some project, it's useful to have an objective. The difficulty is if you think that's the way it's going to work. You can have an objective, but if you think that it's going to unfold a particular way and demand that it unfolds that way and that way only, I'm afraid we're in trouble. So there's nothing wrong with having objective, but being free in oneself to accept that is not going to unfold in accordance with your demands. It just does not work that way. So you could see it with regard to small aspects of life, but you could also see that with the whole life. I mean, life doesn't unfold according to our plans, does it? Surely sometimes with some objectives. That it does. Oh yeah, no, sometimes they do, that's true. There's sometimes a nice similarity and a coincidence between how I see something unfolding and how it actually unfolds, that's true. But you can't demand that that's how it unfolds. So demand is the key word there? Demand is the problem. The traffic lights might be red and all the demanding that they should be green just makes you a miserable human being. But it would be very good to examine what is the objective of the life. What is the purpose of this life? Thank you. Okay. On the same point that you mentioned, you should have an objective, but accept as the events unfold. Mm. If the events unfold, that means you actually re-look at each event to get that objective. That means you have to go back that event again, see whether it's working okay or not. So that means you have to reprogram it, reprogram it, reprogram it. So you have to go back again to check it. Is that the way that you're suggesting? I'm not clear on what you're saying, actually. Accept the events that unfolds to reach that objectives. That's what you mentioned. There's a need to practice acceptance along the way. Whatever the objective is in a situation, let's say the objective is a certain objective relation to business, you may have an objective, but you have to accept the event as it unfolds. Now, there may be a learning in the event, and that will come from acceptance. You may have to change direction, that will come from acceptance. You may have to make all sorts of changes and decisions along the way. The more accepting of the events, the wiser those decisions, or the more reasonable will be your response. Yeah, so in a project, for example, you've got a one-year objective plan, and there are, say, ten events, or two events, for example. But event number one that you're going to, and it is not unfolding, which you want to finish, say, in six months. If it's not unfolding, that may take a longer time. Yeah, it may take another eight months rather than the six months, which you have actually programmed for. So that means your objective time scale actually prolongs. So you don't meet your objectives. Yes. So this problem starts. So how do you reconcile that six months time scale for that event that you have to accept it or not accept it? Well, you may have to accept that you made a complete bags of your planning in the first place. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's even helpful, I don't know, but certainly if you get something very badly timed, you may just simply have to accept that you planned badly. You weren't awake at the beginning of the event. You didn't take account of all the different factors and the different aspects that would impact on the event, whatever that event is.
I don't know if you've ever seen, sometimes you think you're going to get up on Saturday and you're going to do this, this, this and this, and then you're going to have lunch. And that's a plan in your head, isn't it? It bears no relationship to reality. <laughs> and it's in your head. And off you go and you get a little bit of this done and it's lunchtime. <laughs> now that's the reality. There is a need to accept that there is a reality and things unfold like this Argodata said. There's lots of factors in every event and your efforts are only one of them. No matter what you think in your head, there is actually a measure for the event that's in keeping with the reality of the situation. And it's really understanding what exactly is the real measure for this particular task or this project or this event, like the Saturday morning escapade. Do you recognize that one? Yeah. You think you're going to get lots and lots of work done. That's just a dream. <laughs> the reality is different. And the more awake and the more connected to the reality, the better will be the plan more intelligent plan, and accepting that would be useful. Like, I'm supposed to go to Letterkenny tomorrow evening. Up until this morning, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to Letterkenny tomorrow evening to give a talk. So I Google mapped where I am during the day, and I put in Letterkenny, and it shows up four hours and 20 minutes. Now, somewhere in the back of my head, it's, I can do that. I'll be leaving at five, and I have to be there for half seven. There's a little voice in my head saying, I'll be able to manage that. I have to accept that that is not possible. It's unreasonable and make an alternative arrangement. <laughs> but I could ignore the reality of the event. I could not accept the situation and try and do it anyway. And that would make life very miserable for those two and a half hours. Before I ask a question, I was just <coughs> going to say, I noticed my two-year-old doesn't do any of this. He no. doesn't seem to have a plan when he gets up in the morning. No. Let's just get those blocks out and let's get building. Just engage us. Yeah, yeah that's very good. The question I was going to ask, Brian, <coughs> was really about the taking action, which maybe I don't think you really emphasised that it's one of the things that seems to go on with people who don't accept. They, it's a sort of putting up with, and it seems yeah. to freeze them from taking effective action. And maybe you could say more about that, about actually taking full action to deal with whatever the situation happens to be, yeah. like standing in the queue, yeah. It needs to be dealt with. Well, you've said it really. It's not an acceptance and lie down and do nothing. It's not a, an instruction for inaction. So it is accepting that this is the situation and then responding fully, which might involve a lot of action. It might involve a change of direction. It might involve dramatic changes. But it doesn't mean lying down and doing nothing and taking no action. Like the very example I've just shared with you, I can't just ignore the situation, I have to take action, I have to find someone who can give the talk. Does that make sense? And I have to act and make the phone calls and make sure I properly look after it. Otherwise, it'll end up as a dog's dinner. There'll be nobody in Letterkenny and there'll be an audience there waiting for someone to give a lecture. But there has to be an acceptance of the situation in order to deal with it intelligently. Non-acceptance would have me trying to do four hours and 20 minutes driving in two and a half hours. Actually, I was asked a question there at the break, which might help us. The way Gandhi responded in India to the British occupation of India was a very intelligent response. Now, we can't know what was going on in Gandhi's mind, but it does strike me that there was a very reasonable, intelligent response to that situation. But you couldn't equate it with a lying down and doing nothing. A very accepting, 
but a very good response. So it's not putting up with, it's not martyrdom, it's not lying down and doing nothing. It's what makes you an intelligent, reasonable human being in any situation. You have the choice really, acceptance makes us intelligent and reasonable, non-acceptance or resistance makes us reactionary and unreasonable. I don't know if you're familiar with Mr. Mulhall. Do you know Shane Mulhall? He describes going to Dublin Airport to travel to America. And he has an important meeting in New York at the time. But he arrives at the Aer Lingus desk without his passport. And he becomes quite agitated and irritated at the fact that he hasn't got his passport. And he sets about to try and convince the girl to let him on the airplane. And he was telling her how important the meeting was, how important he was, how essential that he was at this meeting, and all the justifications and all the ramifications as to why he should be on that airplane, you see. And he said in the middle of his outburst, if that may be too strong a word, he noticed the girl just looking at him. See, and when he stopped speaking, she said, I can put you on the airplane, but the Americans won't let you off. <laughs> and he describes it as complete calm down, and then, and only then, reasonable action followed. Phone, and the passport was delivered in time, and he got on the flight, but it was only then that reason followed, and a response came that was necessary. But prior to that, it's an unreasonable human being trying to suggest that he should be the only one allowed to travel through America without a passport. <laughs> it's just unreasonable. Have a look in your own activities. You know, you go for a, a car parking space and someone nips in in front of you. Have a look at your response, how unreasonable you become. And these are only small, little, incidental, insignificant events. I just wanted to ask you about adversity. You were saying that when adversity comes along, it brings out the best in you and, the, and you rise to the occasion. Yeah. Well, it does present that opportunity. Yeah. But is there a point when you can say, okay, I've had enough adversity and I'd just like something to go along calmly now? Thank you very much. Yeah. You can say that any time you like, actually. <laughs> and you can decide that any time you like. Unfortunately, we have no control over what's going to be presented to us. None. Like, none of us know what we're going to have to meet this evening. We might think we have an idea, but we don't actually know what's going to be presented. And in a way, bemoaning our fate and saying it shouldn't be like this and it's time for the adversity to stop, mm. well, it's going to go nowhere. It just prolongs the misery, actually. Well, remind us what Facina said, because it's very interesting what he says, how he describes it. If you think the adversity should stop, what fundamentally are you thinking about it? One, it should stop happening. Two, it's bad for me. Three, it's time it stops. <laughs> when the truth might be that it's very good for you and it's going to go on forever. <laughs> I'm thinking this shouldn't be happening. But like, where is that coming from? That's just from an arrogant, selfish viewing point that this world shouldn't be unfolding like this. It should be different. What Ficino says is, firstly, so this is, if you like, what he's saying is the result of acceptance. You should be willing to bear cheerfully 
the ills of life which nature herself bids you bear unwillingly. So that means we can turn unwillingness and resistance into a cheerful situation through acceptance. Second, that you make those things which fate has decreed to be inevitable, what's happening anyway, the inevitable, agreeable to your own will. So there's something happening. It's inevitable. It's going to happen anyway. That's the way it is. And we can change that to be agreeable to our own will. And that is very powerful. And thirdly, that you should turn any evil whatsoever into a good, which is the office of God alone. This requires a little investigation as to what this means. If I give you an example, say like a work situation, and you have, in a work situation, with a team and you're being undermined constantly yeah. and your innovation or development or decisions have been overruled with no logic, no rhyme, no reason and yeah. you go and you think, right, okay, well, we'll look at it another way and you continually do this. But if it's a constant thing that's happening, I mean, I'm not being a victim at all, but with no rhyme or reason yeah. other than it's other people who don't like your decisions and they weren't involved in them so they want to change them whether it's for the good or the bad or the yeah. better or whatever for the company so how do you deal with that so the first thing is acceptance that's what's happening but it may need a response you may have to address that issue you may have to speak to someone you may have to speak to a manager or a ceo or someone in authority you may have to speak to a group it may require a response, but the thing is you won't know the right response unless you fully accept this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. If you don't accept this is what's happening, you will come up with the wrong response. Okay. It could be reactionary. It won't be right. It won't be measured. It won't be reasonable. It won't be appropriate. It's acceptance which leads to a reasonable response. Okay. And that might mean going and talking to someone. Mm. It doesn't mean except this is the way it is and I'll just carry on here forever and ever on then. It doesn't mean that. Is it clear that there's a distinction between the two? Acceptance and then respond. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Yeah. It's not lie down and just carry on regardless and show a brave face. But it might be not to do anything. But you won't know that unless you just accept this is what's happening. Okay. It might be, there may be nothing to do. Mm -hmm. You might be overreacting. But the trouble is, without acceptance, that clarity mm -hmm. and the sense of what is really needed doesn't come to you. It's very simple in a way. You know, you, you drive around looking for a car park space. You see someone pulling into the one you've just missed. Just accept that's the way it is. allows you to move on to a good space. Mm -hmm. Cursing and swearing that the man has taken your space just turns you into an idiot sitting in a car. And then there's someone else jumping into the other space that you've just missed. <laughs> it's, yeah. It literally takes away our intelligence. Is that yeah. all right? Yeah. You mentioned about accepting things and that that would be the best force. That's the best force and we should accept that this is the best force. Yeah. But that can be difficult depending on the situation. If you're dealing with someone who's ill or, you know, when I'm thinking of it in that context, it can be difficult to think. Well, this is the best. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. 
But you see, it, it is a version of us thinking that we know differently, we know what's best, you see. Mm. Like we know that this illness shouldn't be striking this particular person now. Mm. We actually think we know that, when we can't know it. Mm. But we do think we know, so there's resistance instead of acceptance. But it, it, when it's so debilitating, it's very difficult to see that that would be the best I know. for that person. I know, it's very challenging. Uh, yeah, I struggle with that. There's a, a lady in the school in Dublin tells a story of her husband retired from the police force, I think five or six years ago, and she was a student in a group I tutored. So she was talking about this retirement and it was coming up and they were going on a world cruise and they were booking the tickets. There was no country they weren't going to see. And as part of this situation, they went in for a medical to find that her husband was riddled with cancer. Now, she describes this as the best thing that ever happened to them. She said that the six years of this marriage, she's at retirement age, before he died, was the best six years that they experienced in their marriage. So, I know it's someone else's example, we think we know what should be happening to us. I think I know what should be happening to me. This is good and this is bad. This should be happening and this shouldn't be happening. These shouldn't get sick, ever. And you see, acceptance provides an opportunity for a whole different way of seeing an event like someone mm. is ill. No, I do accept that and I accept there's ways of dealing it, but it's just very difficult to it is, think it is challenging. that's the best. Yeah, no. There is good things to come out of it, but it is challenging. Well, see, if we don't accept it as the best, it is challenging. And mm. Ficino gives that instruction, accept as the best. If we're not accepting as the best, what are we doing? Putting up with We're not really accepting it. Mm. So it is challenging. It's like partial acceptance. Mm. You said in adversity, you can either shrink or shine. Well, Mandela said that, just... <laughs> Listen, you have a choice. You can shrink and frizzle up and be a little wimp, or you can shine. That's a choice. Now, it's a, a particular phrase used in Mandela's speech. But in every situation, we do have that choice. And sometimes it's quite small, modest situations where we find ourselves shrinking looking after someone, saying hello to someone, being of service to someone. We could shrink a lot from very small things. And sometimes we shine for the big event, and that's relatively easy. But it's in the small details that sometimes we need to shine, and we're not. We shrink. I was talking to someone recently who works with and for me, you see. She was saying that she noticed I might ask her to get in touch with somebody, you see, and she would always email them. And I noticed this, it would always be email. So I asked her about, it's always email, is there never a time when it would be appropriate to ring? And she admitted to being afraid of ringing. So that's a very simple, so she has opportunity every day now to shine by just simply being brave enough to ring instead of email. A very small, very simple, it does give her an opportunity to work at shining in these little small details that nobody sees. And it's in those small ways that you can shrink or shine.
But this will be our last question because you will have to accept that this lecture is ending in a minute. <laughs> if you resist, David can take over here. And I'm <laughs> I really want to, to ask about, there's a, an idea that seems to get in the way of this. I see it quite often in people. The idea that of fairness, a particular person I know, a fantastic human being, but they think that somehow life should be fair yeah. and based on mm -hmm. that that anything that's not in their eyes fair is judged to be you know rejected Unfair. and, and, and wh whatever and it causes enormous pain this idea somehow that if one person has something or a certain standard or whatever that everyone should have that it's a strange it's a kind of a quirky thing because when you describe someone as being very fair and having an idea of fairness, that sounds like a, a good a thing, good thing yeah. but it can be a total torment for this person. Yeah, um, it would be two different things, wouldn't it? Describing someone else's fair is describing someone else's behaviour and how they deal with you and how they deal with you. But thinking to myself that what's happening is not fair is the same thing we've spoken about earlier, where I actually arrogantly think I know how things should be. And what's happening to me is unfair. In whose eyes? My own eyes only. It's not that different than judging I know what should be happening. Did you get that piece from Emerson earlier? Obviously not. Yes. <laughs> I have to accept that you didn't hear it. Now, just have a listen to this in the light of that question. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, imitation suicide. He must take himself for better, for worse, as he is, as his portion, and that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Now, I don't know what you hear in that, but what I hear in that is you're presented with your plot of ground and your job is to till that plot. And looking over your shoulder at other people's plot and envying their plot or thinking your plot should be different and you want a better plot, well, he calls it their ignorance and suicide. Like, that's not fair and it shouldn't be happening to him or it shouldn't be happening to me is is really taking your eye off the board, your plot, and looking out at other plots and thinking your own plot's the worst one. Like, it's not fair, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, um, what's the word, subjective, isn't it? I think it's not fair that you ask me questions now, it's 25 to <laughs> 9. <laughs> like, I go. think actually you should have said, that's enough, Brian, go on home. <laughs> go on home. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, folks. <clears throat>